Hello, everyone, and welcome to the September 2nd edition of Work Comp Academy Weekly News. I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal reversed a 100% fibromyalgia award and a fixed 4.6% COLA. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Southern California Edition versus WCAB Martinez. Elsie Martinez was employed by Edison until 2004 when she allegedly became unable to work. She was a systems computer programmer. Her work involved repetitive use of her upper extremities. The party stipulated that she had suffered two separate industrial injuries. One was a specific injury to her neck, shoulder, wrist, hand, and psych in 2001. The second was a cumulative trauma to her lumbar and cervical spine, both shoulders, both wrists, both hands, and psych. The workers' comp judge awarded 29% permanent disability on a specific injury. But in the cumulative trauma case, the judge found that Martinez's fibromyalgia entitled her to a 100% permanent disability rating and did not apportion any of her permanent total disability to the specific injury or to non-industrial causes. The 100% award was based on the opinion of Seymour Levine, doctor in rheumatology who erroneously believed that Martinez had not suffered a specific injury despite the party stipulation to the contrary. Dr. Levine said that the patient told him that no specific injury occurred. The WCAB denied SCE's petition for reconsideration of the 100% award in the cumulative trauma claim, but the award was reversed by the Court of Appeal. The opinion noted that Labor Code Section 4664 provides that the employer shall only be liable for the percentage of permanent disability directly caused by the injury. The 2004 legislation represented a diametrical change in the law with respect to apportionment. The new approach to apportionment is to look at the current disability and parcel out its causative sources, non-industrial, prior industrial, current industrial, and decide the amount directly caused by the current industrial source. This approach requires thorough consideration of past injuries. The record strongly suggests that one or more of Martinez's disabilities caused by the cumulative trauma overlap with those attributable to the specific injury. The Court of Appeal also noted that the workers' comp judge calculated a COLA at the fixed rate of 4.6%. If found, no justification for inflating the award at a flat, unvarying rate of 4.6%. Neither inflation, nor the cost of living, nor average wages increase from year to year at the unvarying rate of 4.6%. Moreover, all of these factors are more properly the subject of expert testimony, and there was no testimony, expert or otherwise, to support the 4.6 figure. The findings of fact and the award on the cumulative trauma claim was annulled, and the matter was remanded for further proceedings. The NFL and more than 4,500 former players want to resolve concussion-related lawsuits with a $765 million settlement. The settlement would fund medical exams, concussion-related compensation, and medical research. 
Many former players with dementia and neurological conditions believe their problems stem from on-field concussions. The lawsuits accused the league of hiding known risks of concussions for decades to return players to games and protect its image. The NFL has denied any wrongdoing and has insisted that safety has always been a top priority. Many former players have also filed workers' compensation claims in California, even if they only played one game here. Senior U.S. District Judge Anita Brody in Philadelphia announced the proposed settlement after months of court-ordered mediation. She still must approve it at a later date. In court arguments in April, NFL lawyers asked Judge Brody to dismiss the lawsuits and send them to arbitration under the terms of the player's contract. Brody had initially planned to rule in July, but then delayed her ruling and ordered the two sides to meet to decide which plaintiffs, if any, had the right to sue. She also issued a gag order, so it has been unclear in recent weeks whether any progress was being made. The lawyers were due to report back to her last week, but Judge Brody instead announced in court files that the case had settled. In recent years, former NFL players and other concussed athletes have been diagnosed after their deaths with chronic traumatic encephalopathy, otherwise known as CTE. About one-third of the league's 12,000 former players have joined the litigation. The timing of the settlement allowed the NFL to drop the issue from the national conversation before the start of the new season. And now, our fraud report. A U.S. public-private alliance co-founded by Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, AARP, the Identity Theft Resource Center, and others will officially launch this year to fight medical identity theft amid a sickening spike in this form of fraud. The new Medical Identity Fraud Alliance, or MIFA, is aimed at combating medical, medical ID. MIFA will also provide a venue for information and attack intelligence sharing. The FBI and U.S. Secret Service will participate in a liaison capacity with MIFA, and the alliance has reached out to both the Federal Trade Commission and Department of Justice. Officials say that medical identity theft is being called the fastest growing type of fraud. There were 1.85 million victims of medical ID fraud last year, but most insured adults are unaware of this new form of crime. Some 40% of medical ID theft victims have had their health insurance canceled due to fraudulent charges. Victims spend thousands of dollars and more than a year's worth of time trying to recover from the fraud. Medical identity theft typically stems from individuals sharing their insurance or other medical information with family or friends. Or when healthcare organizations suffer breaches that expose patient data. Some 94% of U.S. healthcare organizations have been hit by at least one data breach and close to half have suffered more than five breaches in the past two years. About half of victims of medical ID fraud know the perpetrators who abuse their information. Typically, it's a family member or a friend. Underground forums sell packages of stolen information on victims, including so-called kits that include bank account credentials, social security numbers, health insurance credentials, and phony driver's licenses or other IDs.
These sell for $12 to $1,300. Health insurance credentials go for about $20 a piece, plus another $20 for dental, vision, or chiropractic liens. Buyers are using the health insurance information to get free medical services, drugs, and surgeries. Officials say that a perfect storm is brewing for medical ID fraud with a nationwide move to electronic health records. Combined with the new health care law yielding new health care law exchanges and newly insured Americans. A billing manager, her billing company and her son have agreed to pay $1.7 million to settle allegations that they defrauded the Department of Labor Office of Workers' Compensation Programs. Last year, the United States settled with six other defendants, including two physicians in Oakland, for more than $3 million. The remaining three defendants, Faraday, Haterpower, her billing company, ABC Billing Incorporated, and her son, Ali Haterpower, will, buy, will pay an additional $1.7 million. Heaton Power, her company and her son, submitted false claims for supplies and services not provided, not supported by medical documentation, or not even medically necessary, resulting in millions of dollars of damages to the United States. The majority of the patients were United States Postal Service employees claiming work-related injuries. A physician who formerly worked at the clinic in Texas filed the case pursuant to the Quitam provisions of the False Claims Act. Under those provisions, private citizens may file lawsuits on behalf of the United States and receive a portion of the proceeds of a settlement or judgment. In this case, the citizen will receive about $320,000 as her share of the government's recovery, in addition to a share of nearly $600,000 from the defendants who settled earlier. 68-year-old Estill Mitz, who lives near the Miracle Mile district of Los Angeles, recruited homeless people from Skid Row as part of a scheme to defraud Medicare and Medi-Cal by providing unnecessary health services. He was sentenced this week to 18 months in federal prison and ordered to pay more than $9.8 million in restitution. The skid row capping was discovered after local authorities observed some patients discharged from a local hospital and being dumped on skid row. The patients reported that they had been paid to go to the hospital. Prosecutors claim that Mitz was the ringleader in the long-term crime that used the homeless as fodder for exploiting the Medicare and Medi-Cal programs. Mitz admitted that he received more than one million in kickbacks from three hospitals that took in the patients from Skid Row. The hospitals were City of Angels Hospital, Los Angeles, Metropolitan Medical Center, and Tustin Hospital and Medical Center. Mitz operated the Assessment Center, a facility on East 7th Street in downtown Los Angeles that was also known as 7th Street Christian Day Center. Mitz employed individuals he called stringers to recruit homeless people with promises of small payments. The assessment center was not a medical clinic, but a site that was used for the purpose of recruiting homeless Medicare and Medi-Cal beneficiaries 
for referral to three hospitals. Homeless beneficiaries were recruited for inpatient hospital admissions, whether or not such hospitals were medically necessary. Mitz pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud, money laundering, and tax evasion. His sentencing was delayed a number of times as he provided assistance to the government's investigation that has led to 11 defendants being charged and convicted. Mitz is the latest in a series of defendants to be sentenced in relation to the Skid Row investigation. Robert Bourseau, one of the owners of City of Angels, was sentenced to 37 months in prison, and Dante Nicholson, the director of marketing at City of Angels, was sentenced to one year in prison. A doctor who admitted Skid Row patients to the Tustin Hospital and Medical Center was sentenced to one year in federal prison. A West Hollywood doctor pleaded guilty to a federal drug trafficking charge for writing hundreds of prescriptions for various controlled substances after a federal order revoked his authority to prescribe drugs. 72-year-old James William Eisenberg, who resides in the Venice District of Los Angeles, pleaded guilty to one count of distribution of hydrocodone, a drug best known by the brand names Vicodin and Norco. Eisenberg wrote the prescriptions while he worked out of several medical offices in West Hollywood, including a Santa Monica Boulevard storefront he called Pacific Support. Eisenberg also issued medical marijuana, recommendations from these West Hollywood locations. In order to legally prescribe controlled substances, physicians must be registered with the United States Attorney General and have a valid DEA number along with registration for it. In 2011, a DEA administrative judge determined that Eisenberg acted as a drug dealer and suspended his registration number. The DEA then issued an order permanently revoking Eisenberg's registration in 2012. But that did not seem to stop Dr. Eisenberg. No, the DEA investigators later learned that Eisenberg continued to prescribe controlled substances. The California Department of Justice database that can be used to track prescriptions showed that patients filled more than 1,700 of his prescriptions for controlled substances, including more than 1,200 prescriptions for hydrocodone, all after his DEA suspension. Surveillance and undercover operations confirmed that Eisenberg continued to write prescriptions for controlled substances in violation of the DEA's revocation order. Eisenberg faces a statutory maximum sentence of 10 years in federal prison when he is sentenced in December. And in regulatory news, the DWC issued a notice of public hearing for the pre-designation of personal physicians and reporting duties of the PTP regulations. The public hearing is set for 10 a.m. October 7th in the auditorium of the San Francisco State Office Building at 455 Golden Gate Avenue in San Francisco. Members of the public may also submit written comments on the regulations until 5 p.m. that day. Regulations implement provisions of SB 863 that limit the number of chiropractic visits an injured worker may have unless a specific 
exception applies. The regulations also revise the method for an employee to designate a personal physician. The form is revised to include eligibility if the employee has health care coverage for non-occupational injuries or illnesses on the date of injury from any source. The form also will provide a space for the employer to provide the name of the insurer that covers them for non-occupational injuries or illnesses. The form will advise the employee that a chiropractor cannot be a treating physician after the employee has received 24 chiropractic visits. The term chiropractic visit means any chiropractic office visit, regardless of whether the services involve chiropractic manipulation. If the employee still requires medical treatment after 24 visits, the employee will have to select a new physician who cannot be a chiropractor. The regulations concerning the reporting duties of primary and secondary treating physicians are being revised to include essentially the same information. The notice, text of the regulations and forms can be found on the proposed regulations page. The DWC has also posted a 15-day notice of modifications to the electronic document filing and lien filing fee rules. Members of the public are invited to present written comments until 5 p.m. on September 11th. Among other changes, revisions also add a new section that sets forth when lien filing or activation fee refund will automatically take place and provides a procedure for requesting lien fee refunds. Lien filing and or lien activation fees will automatically be refunded when 1. A payment was not processed due to a systems error or 2. If the fee was previously paid or the lien is not available for activation or 3. If an improper amount is paid. If the automatic refund is not issued, the lien filing fee refund request form must be submitted with any required documentary proof. A refund will only be provided upon a showing of good cause. Finally, there are new revisions to the Eames Reference Guide and Instructional Manual and the Jet File Business Rules and Technical Specifications. The notice, text of the regulations and forms can be found on the proposed regulations page area of the DWC website. The California Department of Insurance will hold a public hearing on September 30th to consider the WCIRB's regulatory filing it submitted this August. The WCIRB proposes a number of changes to the California Insurance Commissioner's regulations. The hearing will be held at the California Department of Insurance San Diego Room, 300 Capitol Mall on the second floor in Sacramento. The WCIRB proposed that the state change a classification system use collective bargaining agreements to validate an employee's hourly wage rate and amend other arcane items. But the hearing of more general interest will be a second public hearing which has not yet been scheduled. This month the Rating Bureau will submit its recommendation on pure premium rates for next year. Then. The Department of Insurance will schedule a separate public hearing on the proposed issue 
of these rates. The rating bureau said last month that it would recommend that insurers boost their, bo their base rates by 3.4%. The insurance commissioner can accept, reject, or modify the base rate that the rating bureau recommended. California's workers' comp insurers use the recommendations from the commissioner and the rating bureau as a benchmark, but they're free to set their own rates. And in financial news, previous NCCI studies of temporary total disability indemnity benefits duration showed an increase in average duration nationwide following the onset of the recession in 2007. 2009 was the nationwide peak in TTD duration at 143 days. And average duration has since declined to 140 days in 2012. Average durations of TTD have historically risen or fallen in step with the national unemployment rate. The contracting and manufacturing industry groups had the steepest declines in average duration. Other industry groups were either slight declines or modest increases. Within most industry groups, average durations for women are longer than average durations for men. However, men have higher shares of claim than women in the longer duration industry groups, so that when viewed overall, men's average duration is longer than women's. Duration increased for all age groups, with most age groups reflecting the countrywide duration increase of 10%. Well, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the Work Comp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And drop by again next week for more news.